Hello and welcome to The Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Nick Tyrone, the man behind the This Week in Brexit Land newsletter covering what's going on in the world of Brexit and the post-Brexit landscape that we're starting to see emerge. Nick Tyrone, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. The UK voted to leave the EU back in 2016. Boris Johnson declared and still declares that the UK left the EU on 31st of January, his famous slogan, we got Brexit done. But as you noted in this week's newsletter, full Brexit has been repeatedly delayed and we've still not actually achieved full Brexit. Potentially, that could continue to be further and further kicked down the line. Do you think that this constant delay is more damaging for the UK or has mitigated some of the damage and we've not actually yet seen the true impact of what Brexit will be? Well, it's a double-edged sword because actually um, any any of the trade restrictions, in my opinion, are bad. It's why, I'm, you know, more than anything else, it's why I'm anti-Brexit. Uh, it's just, I just don't, I, I feel like putting trade barriers between every single country that's geographically remotely close is just fundamentally a bad idea unless the trade-offs were so unbelievable on the other side if they were so unbelievably good then maybe i could see a point but i don't really see that emerging and i don't really see how it would happen so you know if as far as i'm concerned uh, you know uh, delaying more trade barriers uh, particularly with goods coming into the uk is a good thing the problem is is that it creates an imbalance so what you have is a situation in which uh, you are doing two things, and they're interrelated. One is you are hurting UK-based businesses, and you are disadvantaging them as compared to European-based businesses. Because basically, European-based businesses face less friction trying to sell into the UK than UK businesses face trying to sell into the single market. So that obviously creates a problem for UK businesses, which then, if you take it to the next level disincentivizes people to have businesses in the UK, because if you're sort of wondering where you might locate something, if you can locate something in northern France and you still have relatively, I mean, it's much more, much less than you did when we were in the EU, but you still have not that much friction. At least there's less friction going that way than there is coming the other way. Uh, it just disincentivizes anyone to start business in the UK, which is fundamentally a bad thing. <laughs> We see politicians in the UK blame the EU for this, and we see EU politicians obviously cite, well, what did you think was going to happen when you left the single market and the relationship that existed within the EU? Do you think that one side is correct here, that whether it is the case that because we left the EU, this was always naturally going to become a more difficult situation? Or do you think there is some merit in the argument that pro-Brexit politicians put where they say that, well, the EU wants to make this a bit of a challenge for the UK to make the point to, to other nations to deter them from leaving? Um, I think it was always going to happen. I mean, I think in terms of... I mean, I've got fundamental problems with pro-Brexit uh, UK politicians taking that line. The Basically, the line is, it's not our fault the EU is being mean to us. So I've got two issues with that, one of which was we were told very explicitly many times before the referendum and then many times afterwards, you know, the line that was trotted out, particularly famously by Michael Gove, we hold all the cards, right? So you can't say we hold all the cards and say, oh, well, we got stuffed because they're they're bigger and meaner 
it's sort of like, well, that sort of implies that we really didn't hold not only not all the cards, but many cards. Uh, so there's a problem there. But secondly, what was always going to happen was there was just basic choices to be made. We could have left the EU, so we could have left the um, the political project, if you like. We could have, you know, not had any MEPs, not had any say anything, but we could have stayed in the single market. Of course, that would have required, you know, uh, retaining freedom of movement. If we really hated freedom of movement that much, we could have said, okay, well, let's stay in the customs union uh, because that will lower the friction. Uh, but that would have meant that we wouldn't have been able to strike our own trade deals because that's part of the whole customs union. You're sort of bound by by the by the trade deals as set by the EU. Uh, so we wanted total freedom, and that was what we wanted. And that's exactly what this is. So we are being treated like a third country, uh, which is what we chose. So it's very difficult to sort of sympathize. It's very difficult to sympathize with this. Well, it's all the EU's fault because we chose to do it. You know, it's like. It's like you can feel sorry for, I don't know, a teenager who runs away from home and lots of horrible things happen to that teenager. But you can sort of say, well, that they, you know, it's, it happened because they ran away from home. You know, there's a sort of very obvious cause and effect there. So, yeah, I just I don't really have much sympathy for the pro Brexit line at all on that particularly. The other argument that they seek to try and justify, as I think you noted in, in your newsletter again this week, is that. We see pro-Brexit politicians try and justify the situation we're witnessing in the UK now and the difficulties that have emerged by trotting out this line, see, Brexit isn't as horrible as you said it would be. And the example that you recently cited was that pro-Brexit figures celebrated the loss of 7,000 jobs in the city because it was lower than the 12,500 that was predicted by the same firm in 2016. Do you think that the remainers that ended up being dubbed the project fear side by the the pro brexit team essentially accidentally gave a way out for brexiteers here to try and justify their actions and if so how do you counter that narrative nowadays yeah i, I think that's that's a huge problem i think i i, I worried about that all throughout the post-referendum period the rainers really created a rod for their own back with the project fear stuff uh, you know, huge problems, I think, were stored up from that. I think when I look at 2016 forward, I feel like what Remainers should have done is one of the follow one of the following. I think we could have either just argued for a soft Brexit and stuck to that. Um, I think we could have just gone, you know, fine, we thought that, you know, we need to have, I mean, I wrote an article for the uh, New European, actually, February 2018, and I said, let's just have hard Brexit. Let's just have it like as soon as possible. Let's just get it over with. Because I felt like it was probably something we were going to have to do. As much as we didn't like it, and as much as we would have, you know, uh, as much as we would have said it's going to be bad, I think we sort of needed to go through it. And I think one of the problems now is we're going through it at a time, you know, where there's the pandemic, and now there's the war in Eastern Europe. And these are all things that are going to be able to be used for years and years to come uh, for why, oh, well, it's not Brexit, it's this or it's that and the other. And so I, it's going to take so long for it to wash out until people go, you know what? Yeah, actually having trade barriers between all of our closest neighbors is a really bad thing. And what do we get for that exactly? What was, what was, what was the benefit on the other side? So yeah, I think, uh, I think it's time. That's the only thing that, you know, we just have to just keep making the arguments. And, and basically just really what we're doing is, um, 
calling Brexit to account, which anything should be. I mean, anything that's subject to any sort of democratic vote, you should there should be another side that says, well, how you said the promise was this, and what's been delivered is this. And why is that? I think, you know, I, I always say that's a very important part of any democratic process. So that's all we can do, really, is just keep pointing out <laughs> how and why Brexit is bad. You touched on two of the areas that we're now seeing the Conservative Party use to defend the current situation that, that people are facing, citing the cost of living crisis, post-pandemic situation that we're in, and now the conflict between Ukraine and Russia as yeah. reasons for why British people are, are being impacted by, for example, rising fuel costs or rising food prices. What do you say to politicians that seek to try and justify the current situation by citing these? Well, I'd say two things, one of which is um, you can make the point that, you know, Brexit, the problem with Brexit really is that it it hurts our ability to bounce back from, from these things because we just don't have that trade. The, the trade's gone. Um, and, you know, they can say, well, and the only real logical response they can have to that is, well, we'll get these trade deals and they'll, you know, they'll magically solve all the problems. Uh, and we can come on to that, the whole trade deal thing. But, um, but, but secondly, I think then you have to look at other countries that are rebounding better uh, and a lot better and handling these things better and having not quite having the same inflationary shocks. So I think you're kind of left. I mean, if I was talking to a sort of um, pro-Brexit Tory, I'd say, but if you don't think it's Brexit, I think then you can only really blame your own government. Uh, because if this isn't Brexit, I don't see what else it is other than the Tories just not actually responding to the crisis well enough. And maybe we need a change of government. You know, that would be that would be my response. On the trade point, we saw the Chancellor Rishi Sunak the other day in front of the Treasury Select Committee basically say the quiet part out loud that they knew a change in Britain's trading relationship with the EU was always going to have a negative impact. And, and he admitted that that was evidently the case. Why, maybe there is an obvious answer here, but but why do you think then we saw this preaching that these changes in the trade relationship could have been beneficial for Britain. Was it just delusion? Was it an attempt just to push through their other anti-EU views under the cover of trying to claim that there was an economic benefit? What you have to understand is the Brexit mentality, and I think you need to go back a little bit pre-referendum. So I used to organize events at Labour and Tory conference on, you know, the European question. And there was widespread apathy at the time, even amongst the political class and people who were very attuned to people who would go to a political conference. Um, the remainders were very much of a, well, we're always going to be in the EU, so who cares? We're probably never going to be part of a federal Europe. We'll always be on the, the outskirts. We'll never take the euro. What is there to talk about? Um, the pro-Brexit people were just, well, we need a referendum. Um, but what you would sometimes get from the hardcores, the really, you know, the people who really cared about this stuff. So these are the people who became the ERG, stuff like that, was there was a very actually, uh, I mean, coherent in terms of what they thought Brexit would would, would cause, what would happen when we left the EU. And I think a big one was we leave the EU and what will happen is that will cause huge problems within the EU. They will fracture all over the place. France and Germany will fall out. They'll all be worried about losing access to the UK market. Um, there will be fights uh, in between. This might even lead to the, the, the basically the, the, the dissolution of the EU. Uh, 
And then what would happen is Britain would then lead the vanguard to sort of create a new trading empire, if that makes sense. So we'd pick off bits of the old EU that's now crumbling around everyone. Uh, there would be this new trading relationship with America, with the Commonwealth. And basically, the UK could kind of pivot to being part of the EU and having to take these rules and being part of this club where everybody's equal, to basically being in the lead and, you know, uh, and basically being able to just just restructure the whole bounds of international trade. You know, I used to say, well, that's just a bit ridiculous and I don't think it will happen. But at, at the very least, I understood that's what they thought would happen. Um, so what's interesting now is that now that it hasn't happened, how they've sort of changed their argument a bit and how they never said that and that was never part of the deal. And actually, this is all wonderful. And uh, it's great that we, you know, uh, we have uh, whatever <laughs> whatever they say that's great about Brexit at, at any particular moment, um, which is slightly vague and odd. Um, but the it really reminds me a lot, actually, of uh, the Bolsheviks. Uh, which I know is going to be a strange comparison, so I'll, I'll justify it. Um, so if you look at the Bolsheviks, uh, when they finally got hold of, of total power in the old Russian Empire, what became what you know, they rebranded the Soviet Union, um, they were sort of left in a bit of a quandary because they, through Marx, they had a whole idea of what would happen when you destroyed capitalism, if you like, and recreated it with a, a socialist system. And what happened was they found a lot of the stuff just didn't work the way the theories thought they would about what Marx said would happen. Uh, it all was just a bit strange and they had to kind of patch it up and sort of, um, and, and that's sort of like what the Tories have ended up with now. Again, you know, they had this grand theory about the, e you know, Brexit will cause the EU to crumble and America will give us this great trade deal. And then, France will want to join it, and we'll just basically reorder the whole structure of um, of the way trade works in the world. And what we've ended up with is being isolated with very few new trade deals that are of any significance, and just with massive trade barriers between every single European country, other than us. So, so I mean, again, they would never have argued. And if I had argued that in 2013, if I had come to a Tory, you know, uh, fringe event, and I said, "What took what?" You know what Brexit will mean is, you know, years afterwards we won't have any sort of prospect of a trade deal with the U.S. And in fact, we will put up huge trade barriers and have huge trade barriers between every single country in the single market. And they would have just said that's ridiculous. That will never happen. It's totally impossible. Uh, just what? Just you know that that's that's Project Fear. Um, so you have to understand the the goalposts of Project Fear constantly move. And of course, Remainers have helped in that. I think, unfortunately. But they, I mean, they'll never admit that Brexit's bad. And it's not, is it about misleading? I think for some people, maybe it is. I mean, I think I always wonder about Boris Johnson because actually how much he ever really believed in Brexit is very much open to question. And I still question it. But the real hardcores, you know, I mean, someone like Bill Cash, I mean, I'm telling you, he really believes. And nothing would, a classic example is uh, John Redwood. You know, pre-Brexit, this guy was like, you know, sort of on the libertarian Tory right. And now he sounds like a raving socialist. And like, what, what's done that? It's, it's because he's had to, because if Brexit's the thing in the center of your universe, then you have to change everything to revolve around that center of the universe. Um, and we'll just see more and more of that, I think, as the years go on. We'll be back with more right after this break. 
Do you use your Facebook account to log into every new website, application or e-shop because it's faster and easier? Who ever wondered what could happen if your Facebook account is hacked? Well, let me tell you, hackers would get a free shot at all of your accounts that are linked to Facebook. We're not even talking about leaking your personal information, credit card details and delivery address. There are more serious crimes that could happen, such as identity theft, crimes committed under your name, loans under your name, and more. NordPass can help you to avoid these situations. NordPass is more than a password manager. It's the essential cybersecurity tool that makes everyone's life easier and safer. NordPass can generate secure passwords. The more complex the password, the safer your account. Every year, NordPass conducts global research to explore the top 200 most common passwords. This year, the research covered 50 countries, with 123456 being the most popular password worldwide, and people even using their own names as their password. You can also store all passwords in one place, no need to memorise all of them, access all your logins with a single master password, save your time with NordPass syncing your credentials across six of your devices so you don't need to type them in each time you pick up a new gadget, and it comes with a data breach scanner, so you can find out if your online account or credit card information has already been leaked, identify where and when the leak happened and what type of data was compromised. It's a simpler, easy to use and very secure password manager created by the cybersecurity experts who built NordVPN, the advanced online security and privacy app trusted by more than 14 million users worldwide. Right now, you can get 50% off a two-year NordPass premium plan by visiting nordpass.com forward slash the Hardy Report or using the code the Hardy Report. Plus, you get an additional month for free when you sign up right now using that code. And it all comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to nordpass.com forward slash the Hardy Report or use code the Hardy Report to get 50% off a two-year NordPass premium plan right now with an additional month for free. You mentioned about the issues that have emerged with trying to get any significant trading deals that have been positive for Britain. And one of the things that has been blamed on that is the approach that the Conservatives took to Brexit. They took the view that a hard Brexit was the only acceptable Brexit. We saw there was suggestion in the early days about maintaining some of the relationships, including trading relationships, but that faded away and they pushed towards that clean cut, essentially, is what they proposed. And they ultimately, once full Brexit has been achieved, they hope to have. Do you think that that is to blame then the type of Brexit that they took, that they went for that hard Brexit? Or do you think there just would never have been a sustainable way to keep the stronger trading ties with the EU in any sort of post-Brexit agreement? Do you think the EU just wouldn't have agreed to that in any circumstance? Oh, no, no, the EU would have been fine with it. If we, I think if we wanted a, there was all sorts of options and uh, yeah, we could have done that. The problem is every single time there's trade-offs, and in a weird sort of way, for the hardcores, I really do actually understand why they went for hard Brexit. Because what's the point of leaving the EU unless you're going to really go for it, right? Like, actually, the point of leaving the EU just so you can be 
like in a sort of EEA type of relationship. I mean, you can say, well, I mean, really all the, the biggest difference is now you don't have a say in any of the rules. Now you can't influence anything and you just have to take all the rules. Why, why would Britain want to do that? Why that, that doesn't make any sense. Um, so I get that actually. I I, under, I really did understand the arguments against the soft Brexit because it does sort of make you go, well, well then what's the point of leaving? Um, so we could have done it. We could have had a much softer relationship. We could have kept things, but every single thing that you 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 take like so for instance being in being in the single market would have way less friction would have had lay, way less problems um we still would have been paying in way less than we did as an eu member but again we now we don't have any say on the rules and we have to, and we still have freedom of movement right so freedom of movement was this red line that we couldn't accept then we have to be out of the single market customs union again we don't have to have freedom of movement but we would have to we wouldn't be able to make any trade any new trade um, our own trade um, deals at all. Uh, and if the whole point is, well, we're getting out of the EU so that we can have all these great trade deals. And I mean, I can sit here and say, I think all of that was rubbish. And actually, that's really proving to be the case. I mean, you know, the US, the whole idea of, the, of having some special trade deal with the, with the US that they have never done of a type in their entire history as a nation was always slightly ridiculous. But again, if you really believe in the whole Brexit thing, it only really makes sense to sort of go for it. So yes, we could have had a much closer relationship with Europe, but again, there's there's prices to be paid for that. When you look at part of the reasons that people say that they chose to go for Brexit and why people went for that harder Brexit approach, as you, as you know, was that going for Brexit was about cutting off from the EU, not having those trade-offs, not accepting freedom of movement and other issues that that became a real red line for pro-Brexit individuals. But some of the promises that were made, and one that's become quite a big issue for people now, were things on like energy bills, for example, where the Conservatives during the Brexit campaign, Boris Johnson himself claimed to voters that leaving the EU would make household gas bills cheaper. Now, we can't ignore the fact that the conflict in Europe has played a part in the rising fuel prices, but the UK has seen a 54% increase in energy prices, a record hike, while France, on the other hand, still in the EU, has legislated to block energy price rises to 4%. Why do you think that the Conservatives didn't stick to promises like this that were made during the Brexit campaign, falling behind EU nations? Do you think it was that they were just unrealistic aims to begin with, or or is it the case that it doesn't suit the aims of the government now? What do you think is that motivation? Well, yeah, a lot of them were empty promises. And I think what they'll they'll try and come back and say is, well, you know, that's that Rees Mogg line of, well, we couldn't have foreseen, you know, a pandemic followed by a war in Eastern Europe. But all that really proves, and, and in particular, given what France has been able to do in terms of their energy costs, is say, well, Brexit didn't really help us, did it? I mean, how did it how did it help? In what way? It, in what way did Brexit help us keep energy prices low? How is it doing that now? It's very clear that it it didn't and it hasn't. Um, and you know that's a broken promise, and that's a broken promise of Brexit. Uh, and there's no real way out of it. But they'll just you know they'll just have semantics around it endlessly to say you know I. I what they'll do is then try and throw you back to the Project Fear stuff. You're saying, well, what are you saying that leaving the EU has resulted in uh, higher energy prices? And no, no, it hasn't. But of course, what I think, you know, you have to throw back at them is 
yes, but it didn't help us keep them down, did it? That was your your promise was we'll have lower energy prices. We don't. And that's an issue because you said that Brexit would give us that. So at the moment, uh, Brexit doesn't really have a whole lot of, um, I mean, well, you know, no one wants to, there's there's no one in mainstream politics who really wants to take this up particularly. I mean, I, and understandably in some ways, because, you know, uh, they argued about it for three and a half years and it was exhausting and everybody's just tired of it. But I mean, the, the problem is that now no one is there to sort of say, well, hold on, wait a second. <laughs> one of the promises of this whole thing was this and like energy prices is a great one. Why hasn't Brexit delivered that? Surely even in the face of everything else, shouldn't we have lower energy prices like let's say than France, who's in the EU? That would be a good yardstick. So yeah, uh, I think it's it's unfortunate that there just seems to be no mechanism for holding them to account for this stuff. On that point of promises and the lack of accountability that seems to be there, with Brexit Opportunities Minister Jacob Rees-Mogg asking people to help him find opportunities from the UK's departure from the EU, do you see there as being any potential upside if they take the right approach here going forward? The blunt answer is no, and uh, and I, I can actually back that up. So for two years, uh, from 2017 to 2019, I worked with Oliver Letwin on something called the uh, Red Tape Initiative. And the whole idea was to look at EU laws in nine sectors. And the reason that we chose the nine sectors that we did was because they were the least traded. And what I mean by that is that is... Um, Sectors where there were where most of the where most of the the um, where most of the selling goes on domestically, and so you, there's little export going on. And so what that means, of course, is if there's a whole like uh, mound of EU red tape that's burying us, right? These sectors should feel it the most because they're having to comply with the regulation without getting the benefit of selling into the single market at least as much as other sectors because they're not doing it as much. And so we looked at housing, uh, infrastructure, retail, tech, uh, tourism. Uh, I'm trying to remember all the rest of them. Uh, <laughs> it was a while ago now. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, these traded sectors. And I was, you know, and I was coming at it from a Remain point of view, but I was also coming at it from a, well, maybe just maybe this is the one area of Brexit that has something to it, right? You know, I, I have to admit, I mean, I have no idea. We've heard for years and there's been loads of arguments about, you know, from pro-Brexit people saying there's all these laws and 70% of our laws come from the EU, et cetera. And then the the counter argument of going, no, 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 it's that's a misleading figure and all that. Stuff. So I thought, well, this is a great chance to look at it. And it's particularly good because and given that we, we, we voted to leave, it won't be an abstract exercise. So let's say we were going to just remain in the EU. We could talk to loads of businesses about, well, what would you do, you know, if you had to, if we left the EU, what, 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 but they, the amount of serious engagement you'd get with it would be minimal because they're going, well, why should we worry about an abstract? Now they had to actually worry about it and they were actually thinking about it. So we could be there where they're actual thinking about how we're going to adjust to being outside of the EU, but maybe outside of the single market, as it turned out to be. Um, what you know? What is there? And it was shocking how little there was. I was genuinely, I genuinely still feel a bit floored by it. A good example was uh, retail. So you know, you hear so much. You know, we obviously we heard years and years about bendy bananas, all that sort of stuff. So you know, we were led to believe that within retail there should be loads of stuff. There should be loads of EU regulations and directives that were 
difficult, harmful, or the very least, okay, if we have to leave the single market, it's better that let's get rid of all this stuff. And we found literally nothing. <laughs> nothing at all and we really pressed people we we're like what about this directive that says that, you know it wasn't like we just you know we, we would we would get out the directive and say well this requires you to do this uh doesn't isn't that bad and they're like well no because you'd have to have some regulation around that anyway and actually that's pretty sensible and we wouldn't one of the things we got a lot was we, we wouldn't trust the uk government to put in something yeah you know, to not put something in worse that was actually more harmful or more that was actually worse in terms of red tape um, so, you know, I've sort of been through the exercise and there's lots of sectors I didn't, we didn't cover. We, I didn't look at financial, uh, the financial sector at all, for instance, but it gave me a sense certainly of how little there is in terms of EU law and regulation that is on the, the books in the UK that's genuinely holding back innovation or anything or anything really, you know, like, uh, a classic example of this is this UKCA. I don't know how much you've heard about this, but the idea being, so Europe-wide, there is a uh, like a CE certificate. You probably everybody's seen it somewhere, um, which is just basically saying this this accords to the standards uh, dictated by the single market. And so, what the UK wants to do is like, well, let's just get rid of. We'll just have our own UKCA. But without really realizing it, I mean, and this is classic Brexit to me, without realizing all the UK government's doing with that is adding an extra layer of red tape and bureaucracy to business. So now instead of having a CE, which you would have had before, which allowed you to sell into the entire single market, right, which is a huge portion of probably where you're selling, now you need a UK CA as just to sell in the UK. So it's just a complete nightmare. And uh, so why I have such a problem with the pro-Brexit people's talking about, oh, the protectionism of the EU, the protectionism of this. You know, all we've done so, so far, all Brexit has meant is much more protectionism in the UK, much, much more. Um, if they want to reverse that, I mean, I, I don't know. But again, the way to do it isn't by slashing regulation, um, which just isn't really going to achieve very much, unless they wanted to do something really radical, which would be extraordinarily unpopular. Things like, well, let's just take everyone's um, uh, entitlement to holiday pay away. Let's just take that away. And that's going to be incredible. So that would free up businesses in some sense. So, well, now we don't have to pay holiday pay. Okay, that's great. You know, you could lower um, employment standards, certainly. And that would be a thing that you could do outside of the EU. You know, you're no longer bound by the directors around that. But or is the UK, you know, is the UK government going to do that, given how unpopular that would be? No, not really. And so as soon as you get rid of all the stuff that's so radical, it would be immensely unpopular. It's just left with nothing. The UK obviously hoped that when it left the EU, as you mentioned earlier, other countries would follow suit. There was talk about Greece potentially even France, Italy, Poland, Hungary, but none of that happened. And in fact, we've actually seen Hungary and Poland actually become closer in their relationships, signing up to the budgetary deals and the financial agreements and working with EU presidents. Do you think the fallout from the Brexit referendum and the impacts that everyone can see it's having on the UK now has reduced the chances of another EU country leaving the bloc? Or do you think there is still that underlying tension that another EU nation could leave? Well, I'll start by saying that I, I always thought that the idea of other countries leaving the EU other than the UK was always completely oversold and was largely sort of Brexiteer fantasies. Um, 
this idea of like Poland and Hungary was it was so unlikely they were ever going to leave. I mean, for for a big reason being that they are a net, uh, basically uh, uh, money wise, they net gain by being in the EU. So they're a poorer country, so they get money from being in the EU. Um, and they're in a perfect situation where they get all this money from the EU, but then can complain about the EU. But that's just that's politics. That's just basic politics. They there's no serious kind of um, desire. I think by even even the quite right wing parties that uh, employ all this anti EU rhetoric sometimes to actually leave. Um, because why would they leave? You know, it's just like why would Hungary leave? It just just makes no sense. They get money from it. Orban can complain about it all he likes. He can ignore the rules and they don't kick him out. Why would he leave? It just like it it sort of defies any logic as to why anyone would think that Hungary would leave the EU. It, it doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, Greece, if they didn't leave at the time of the crisis, why would they leave now? It just doesn't make any sense. They've taken some hit for remaining in the EU. And I think there was a real understanding that while there was some bitterness in Greece, lots of bitterness about how the EU handled that, you know, being outside the EU could be terrifying and could really be a massive negative. Um, and I think that's generally what we're seeing. I mean, you know, France leaving. So, I mean, even if like Le Pen won the presidential election, I don't, uh, you'd hear, and, and by the way, if that happens, you'll hear so much from like the Daily Express, et cetera, talking about how this is the end of the EU and they're going to leave. And without actually, Le Pen has completely dampened down any like talk about any of that. I mean, even talk about leaving the euro, that's dead because actually it just wasn't popular. And people were like, we don't want to leave the euro. That would be so disruptive. And she basically, to get back to where she has done, you know, popularity-wise, she basically had to drop all the anti-Europe stuff. I mean, she'll engage in it time to time, but there's no, there's no, there's no serious policy there about even leaving the euro, never mind the EU, because it's just not popular in any way in France. And it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't work. So no, no one's gonna leave the EU. And you know, as I say, I don't think before Brexit there was any serious possibility of it but i think brexit given how messy it was and how it turned everything upside down and again britain ended up with a bad trade deal uh huge trade barriers between all its neighbors that, that's just a warning sign for anybody and it'll be much worse actually for let's say the netherlands wants to leave i mean what a nightmare they'd have to set up you know uh customs posts all around their borders just total nightmare. And for, again, for what's the what's the gain? It's just not it's not there. Finally, where can people find out more about you, and where can people read this week in Brexit Land? So uh, this week in Brexit Land, you can go to Nick Tyrone. That's N I C K T Y R O N E dot Substack dot com, and there you will find it. You can find me on Twitter uh, at Nicholas Tyrone. Uh, it's my handle uh yeah i mean i'm fairly easy you can google me if if all that passes you by and you'll you'll a find my twitter and b find my Substack, and c find anything else i've ever written uh it's kind of all there either uh you know on mainstream news uh places i've written i wrote for the spectator for uh, for quite a while um and uh and i've got books that are available on amazon i've got a few so that's yeah it's all there nick tyrone thank you for joining me thank you 
That was Nick Tyrone, journalist, political commentator, and the man behind the This Week in Brexit Land newsletter. You can find out more about him and his work on Twitter at Nicholas Tyrone and at nicktyrone.com. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Until next time, goodbye.